All right, Nathan, we finally are jumping onto an episode that we've been trying to organize for a while and get a vet on here. Yeah, I think this is one that everyone in the industry should be a little bit excited for. I mean, I can think of one other podcast just right off the top of my head that's done something like this. So I, I, I just think it's important to, you know, keep having these conversations and expand our horizons into the medical side of our exotic pets. So Lucas, you want to kind of intro what we're going to be talking about tonight? Yeah. So, um, episode 65, we're going to have on Dr. Rob Koch and not only is he, uh, an amazing, uh, uh, exotic vet, um, but he's also my vet for my animals. Um, if any of you haven't listened to the episode where, you know, I had to put down one of my, um, snakes towards the beginning of treatment, um, Dr. Rob Koch was helping me alongside, along with that. But, uh, yeah, he, um, what, what's great and super lucky that I have in my back, uh, door here is, uh, he's worked with large constrictors and is actually the, uh, vet for the san antonio zoo here so we're not just going to be talking about retics or snakes but just we're going to dive into a bunch of information in regards to just exotic animal keeping in general um but i i want to preface this before we even jump in i think it's important that all of us has a vet nearby and what i mean by nearby is is you know i'm, I'm fortunate enough this one's 15 minutes down the road right um that that's lucky for many people i know a lot of you listening are from rural towns and it's a two-hour drive uh, to a Even vet. in Salt Lake, when I'm like 15 minutes away from everything, I still think my exotic vet's probably about 30, 45 minutes out. Exactly. Um, and so uh, the, the important part is just to have one. Even if it's two hours out for an emergency or someone you can call and consult to if they know that you're far away, um, and hopefully you can find one that you can see once or twice and then be willing to take phone calls. But uh, yeah, we're going to jump in. And uh, hopefully you guys enjoy this one. But before we get started, uh, just a reminder for those of you that are watching, uh, drop comments down below. Go ahead and hit the notification bell if you guys are subscribed already. And if you're not, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. And uh, if those of you that like to clean cages while you listen, we're also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I, I figure that's how most of our audience consumes it. I, I even listen to our podcast every once in a while. <laughs> uh, on, you're talking about cages. Spotify or yeah, no, exactly. no, no. I'll throw it on the computer and watch it. Oh, too. okay. Like, yeah. Fair. That's, that's why I was sending you critiques this weekend. I was cleaning yeah. cages and being like, God uh, damn it. I want to change this. Yeah. No, I use a new editing software this week and uh, well, not the new software, but um, you know, I, I export in a higher uh, HD and it kind of threw everything off. But um yeah. Anyways, I, I like to listen to, I'm not huge on podcasts. So like I'd listen to all my stuff on Spotify and I very rarely, unless I'm watching a live on YouTube, I really don't watch a lot of YouTube stuff. Unless it's stand up stuff, then I, I like right. to watch it right. or if it has like media involved. I feel like you know? that's what you go to sleep to is vulgar comedic. Like <laughs> you're, you're not wrong. You are not wrong. That's how I fell asleep last night. All right, let's go ahead and uh, bring Dr. Rob, whether you're just getting into retics or you've been breeding for years, the first place you want to visit is Stewart Design. More and more breeders keep showing up at shows on Morph Market and are all over social media. Sometimes it may feel possible to get anyone's attention. Stewart Designs helps small businesses like yours do big things through brand clarity, helping entrepreneurs to start and scale businesses that are easy to know and love. Their work can help any company or industry, but they've done a ton of work for ours. Stewart Design created the brands for USARC, Canova, 
Reach Out Reptiles, Coiled, and dozens of other well-known reptile breeders. Like many of us, the owner of Stewart Design, Blake, is a keeper and breeder who fell in love with retics through first working with Garrett Hartle. Although Stewart Design does a lot of corporate work, Blake has a passion for working with people in the reptile industry. Stewart Design can help if you're just getting started or you're ready to take things to the next level, you're struggling to stand out and build your presence online or at shows, you don't want to be like the other guys or get lost in the crowd, and you want to make your own way doing what you love. And also, you have big ideas and know your business is special, but you need help sharing it with the reptile community. If something here resonates with you, reach out to Blake and have a conversation. To learn more or get started, visit stuartdesignbrands.com or call them at 855-SD-LOGOS. Clear brands own markets. Stuart Design helps create them. If you are in the market for an enclosure for your reticulated python or any other one of your reptiles, Focus Cubed Habitats is your one-stop shop for not only the best-looking cages on the market, but also provide amazing features and add-ons to your cages. We partnered with Focus Cubed Habitats because they continue to innovate and change the way we house our animals unlike any other caging company out there. Their cages are designed intelligently and provide the most stylish and secure housing for your animal's comfort and well-being. Visit focuscubedhabitats.com for your animal's caging needs. Again, visit focuscubedhabitats.com for some amazing and stylish enclosures. We also want to thank VivTech Products for being an affiliate sponsor of the Retic Lounge. Stop by VivTech Products for the best UV spectrum lighting on the market that will enhance and improve your snake's overall well-being and health. Visit VivTechProducts.com and use the code RETICLOUNGE23 today for 15% off. Again, visit VivTechProducts.com and use our affiliate code RETICLOUNGE23 today for 15% off. Looking for the perfect accessories for your hatchlings or juvenile retics? Look no further than Heli Guy Serpents. Our sponsor, Chris Sexton, is coming in hot with an amazing 3D printer, creating top-notch perches and other caging accessories for your beloved pets. Enrich your retics environment with their high-quality products. Use our promo code TRL10 for a 10% discount on your purchase. Visit them today at heliguyserpents.com and start giving your pets the best. Heli Guy Serpents, the premier source for 3D printed caging accessories. Again, that's www.heliguyserpents.com and use our promo code TRL10 for 10% off all of your 3D printed accessories today. Coke on. Let me see if I can guess which window this is. There we go. All right. What's going on, Dr. Coke? Ah, not much. Just trying to get settled in on a Sunday night. So it's all good. Appreciate you taking the time out. Yeah, absolutely. Ah, I I could talk for hours in reptile medicine, so it's all fun for me. Is that an animal in the background that I hear? Uh no, it's my wife trying to text me. Oh, okay. I was like, <laughs> I was like, please let's dive into which animal that's 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 making that noise. <laughs> no, my wife's out with with a friend of hers, so they're having fun. Cool. <laughs> so she travels for a job, so I get to stay home with the kids and work. So it's all good. Yeah, 
So for those of you listening, we're me and Dr. Coke aren't like buddy buddies, but we happen to run into each other at Carpet Fest, um, Texas Carpet Fest. Ooh. I should say that that was uh, two weeks ago or three weeks from when you guys are going to hear this and um, uh, got the opportunity to exchange numbers and invited him on. And he was nice enough to come on. So uh, Dr. Coke, if you don't mind kind of jumping in, um, I just kind of want to hear like how long, how far back your love for animals started um, all that good historical that kind of led to you going the veterinary route. Yeah. Well, I've always been, my family's always had animals, always had fish, dogs, um, occasional bird parents, raised birds off and on and bred birds off and on, you know, when I was growing up and stuff, um, lots of fish tanks, uh, not so much in reptiles cause mom was a big fan. So I, you know, I would go play, catch horn lizards out in the backyard and, you know, play with those. Cause that was cool in West Texas that, when I grew up. <laughs> I think that that's something that relates to a lot of our listeners, uh, not yep. being able to keep them, but being fascinated <laughs> by them at a young age. Oh yeah. So of course, back then they were like these giant lizards that, you know, when you put in your hand, it like covers your whole hand. Now right. it's like, wow, they're so tiny. <laughs> so, um, I guess we all grow up in a sense, but, uh, um, you said yeah. West Texas, like El Paso or, uh, for at least pre high school, middle school, I, it was in Midland, Texas. Okay. So right in the, right in the middle between the panhandle and West Texas, right in the middle there. Um, then I ended up, my parents moved us down South of Houston. So that's where I went to junior high and high school. All right. And so you said you weren't able to keep reptiles growing up. What kind of birds did you guys keep? Oh, my parents are bred finches, budgies. Um, I think that was kind of the biggest thing. They mostly did finches way back in the day. We had parrot here and there, um, you know, dogs off and on. Then um, kind of getting towards the post high school moment, <laughs> then kind of moved out on my own, which was at undergrad at Texas A&M, then, you know, that's when the reptile bug kind of hit. Though I will say I actually started with frogs because I was a fish person too. So, you know, frogs from fish was just a poison dart frogs, you know, in that early nineties when everybody was getting frogs in by the, just by the box load. So I ended up doing some dart frog stuff and that was fun. Yeah. Those, are, um, those then, are great. Then once I got a chameleon and that was it. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so that's what, why I became, what kind of chameleon? Oh, um, I was a veiled chameleon. This was back in the day before, really before the main internet, when you had like Usenet groups, you had to type everything in and everything was in dot matrix <laughs> type printing <laughs> and stuff. Um, ages me a bit, but um, someone put a posting for baby veiled chameleons that was, I think it was 40 bucks at the time. And they were selling for like $200 plus for a baby, like hatchlings and stuff. Like I said, early 90s. And it was like, you know, these are all metabolic bone disease babies. They're, some of them are better shaped than others. Some have crooked bones, but they've been treated. They seem to be stable. They're eating, et cetera. So I was a sucker. And you know, I try to think how I try to think how I did that. If I mailed in a check, I can't remember <laughs> old time how we did that. But um Western Union. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so in it, little box, little chameleon pops out. And um, yeah, I got hooked on that. 
just a, just a bit. <laughs> Frogs eventually kind of dwindled out and added some more chameleons over the years. Then I did a lot of chameleon stuff. And of course, as all reptile people do, unfortunately, we get two, three, 200. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, I, I did that too, just all over the, the taxa, just different things in the 90s. You know, everything was coming in while caught at the time. So it was just a plethora of options. Um, being a vet student at the time, you know, it kind of afforded me a little bit of flexibility because I knew enough to be dangerous. So, you know, I dealt with wall caught stuff, um, which, you know, is definitely has a lot of ups and downs right. <laughs> dealing with all those. Uh, but it was fun. It was, it was definitely a wave. That's when reptile medicine really just kind of really started kicking in. Um, and that's when the reptile and feeding veterinarians really started back in the nineties. So I kind of was in that first wave of vets that really hit that just really hit the ground running and just everything was coming in and that was the beginning of the whole like for geckos bearded dragons ball pythons or so this trash species that came in from africa that was all well caught right. nothing fancy you know there's yellow bellies but no one knew what they were at the time mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like oh look this is a cool variant who knew should have saved all those. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, just the crazy things that were back then. Uh, then once I graduated vet school in 96, I went on to a private practice in Houston and just really built a practice there. Uh, it was a just a dog cat clinic, but she wanted to bring in exotics. So I saw a ton of birds. Um, at the time, it was the largest private pet store, just literally a mile down the road from the clinic. So that worked out well. Um, did a lot of work for them and they referred stuff to me. So it was just, it's all everything. And of course, reptiles are my fascination. So I saw a lot of those too. Did you, um, like, did you go to veterinary school with the intentions of specializing in exotic species or? Yeah, you know, I've, I worked at a, a, a dog cat clinic that okay. saw exotics and yeah, you know, a decent amount of exotics. So I, I, going into it, that was kind of my thought is I would go and do dog cats exotics just kind of have it just a all over general practice though as i went through vet school the exotics kind of get more and more hooked in there and of course you know the chameleon didn't help <laughs> and um, so i started really focusing in on exotics and you know obviously reptiles you know to a to a um, high degree um then by the time i graduated I want to do exotics as a large part of my practice. See a few dog and cats here and there, I guess pay bills, but you know, just the exotics is just what's going to keep me going. Then as I got in practice and it just kept going more and more exotics and uh, just where it's where I found my passion. And it's, it's like those pair of gloves that fit those pair of jeans that fit, you know, it just, it's just like, it just kept getting better and better. Now, and, um, now no, there, I figure there's a, it, it's pretty hard to find a reptile vet or a one that's, you know, pretty competent. Um, is, was it hard to get the education in the exotic stuff for you? Like, well, do you feel like you gain that knowledge kind of working in the field? Both? Yes. Okay. <laughs> in a way, because what happens that, you know, <laughs> <Yes>. the nineties, <90s, laughs> um, yeah, we didn't, I mean, there were a few textbooks out there in reptiles, but not a whole lot. Yeah. Um, there's textbooks on avian. Um, there was a 
textbook that came out around that mid 90s on various rabbits and rodents. So all this stuff was really just coming together during that time period. Um, Dr. Mater's book, his first edition of reptile medicine surgery came out in, 90, in the 95. So that was the newest thing that was very clinically based. You know, there's Fred Fry's book and a couple other books beforehand that were great, but they weren't as modern clinical in practice. So Dr. Major's book was the first one that really came out that was very clinically oriented. Then just seeing things and at the time, it was just a lot of stuff we just didn't know. You know, we knew about metabolic bone disease and calcium. Of course, back then it was crappy vitalites. Then, it, ooh, the UV310 from Zoomed came out. Yeah, so it was right. back way, way back in the day um, that all this stuff was starting to hit the market. And Zoomed was started and all these other companies, Bean Farm and Reptile. I mean, all that stuff was coming up at that time. And there were small businesses. Now they're much bigger. Um, but, yeah, just getting together, going to a reptile conference every year. All of us hung out just sharing stories and trying to figure out, help each other with different various cases and stuff, which is great. Um, hang out at the bar and you'll learn about reptile medicine type thing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, reading any of the textbooks, all the papers that came out, um, even the European vets had their own things. So the one thing about, at least with the reptile amphibian veterinarians, we grabbed onto the European side of things. So we collaborate a lot with it, our international colleagues. And I think that really helped us. Because they had resources and knowledge, we had resources and knowledge, and just combining some of those together, we're able to do some awesome things together. Awesome. Now, like you, you were talking about, you know, metabolic bone disease and everything. When, when did you start to see a lot of the like uh, things that that today make reptile keepers start to panic about, like the the you know, nidovirus or arenavirus, and you know, all those other. Uh, you know, the, the ones that today can be like collection wiping and just wipe things yeah. out. And when, when did that start to kind of surface? Oh, it varies. Um, you know, and back in, oh, I think it was in 97, I presented a paper on this skinny tail, pencil tail disease and leopard geckos, for example. Uh, people knew it as pencil tail. Um, I was presented with a bunch of them that were dying at a local breeder when I was in Houston. And ran a bunch of tests, couldn't find anything. Then it was like, they're dying. I mean, at the time, these were, you know, jungles and different patterns that were all coming out at the time. So they were like $1,000 geckos just dying left and right. And we're talking dozens dying a day. Oh, I mean, he had a pretty large collection. And of course, that was brought in from a couple of different breeders too, saying, you know what happens when you bring in animals without quarantine? Boom. Um, so I went back and we redid all the testing. Then somehow, some way I got lucky and just found a bunch of crypto. Oh, sis. And, I think uh, that's the only time you'll ever hear. I got lucky and just happened to run into a bunch <laughs> of crypto. So, you know, went through, um, then, you know, started testing multiple animals. Um, at the time that was, we were still early in the whole crypto of snakes at least in the serpentis side of things. Now we know that at least in geckos, it's not serpentis. It's, well, it's Seraphim sin varani because it originally was varani, then it went to Seraphim, now it's back to varani. But we sure. time we didn't know that. And this particular thing, what was unique about leopard geckos is more lower GI than upper GI. And snakes is mostly stomach. Though I did hear from other people who have had cases like in um, 
one group had Rosie Boas that had intestinal crypto. That wasn't, that was Serpentis negative. So most likely that may have been a Serophilum or some other species. I mean, there's hundreds of different species of crypto. We don't know them all yet. Uh, but in this case, we presented it and it was kind of one of those things that no one knew about it at the time. It just was like, oh, wow, now we know what causes this. Of course, we, treatment's the bitch. So, because there's not really a good solid treatment for it. I mean, I've right. done a few things uh, with some different antibiotics and medications where I can clear it, but I won't say cure it. Um, so I've had some reasonable success on like the pet side of things. Unfortunately, when it comes to the breeder side of things, it, it's bad. I mean, you, it's, it's just hard to get it under control. Oh yeah. The disinfection is, is a nightmare because you almost have to use like straight ammonia, oh. straight bleach, not together. <laughs> don't do that never yeah, together. Um, I did that once on accident because uh, uh, you're supposed to label bottles when I was working at a, a pet store they didn't have labeled and I mixed the two together and tried to dry clean my lungs with chlorine gas that was not good oh, yeah. so I, I can't yeah, say always read the labels <laughs> yeah um, but yeah no it, yeah. it's it. And but with crypto it's weird because sometimes there, I think there's different strains and you'll have snakes in a collection no one else is positive and they've been they probably had it for years then yeah. there's times when it go in a collection and wipe out the whole group it's mm -hmm. it just it's got to be some particular strain or something else that's in there we don't know because i've seen some collections literally i i swear the animal's probably been positive for years they have no real biosecurity and right. they you know 100 snakes are all fine except for those two skinny ones whereas How, i know in some zoos where it's wiped out 100 200 animals in several oh, months do you think it's species dependent like do some species hold up against it better if they're hiding it dormantly yeah like i've, I've heard retics with at least i've heard retics with at least nido you know they they don't tend to really show the symptoms you know or or you know ibd but you know you you see a bow with any one of those viruses and, and surely it's a pretty quick death yeah it just really depends on you know is it genetic strength you know with inbreeding and other genetic traits that we don't see yeah that's either you know the inner ear issue with these wobbling snakes right. you know we look at all those other things that come with some of these color genetics that we just don't see and that could go with immunity immunity strength as well because there's a lot of times yeah i mean there's animals that two animals in one cage one is respiratory one doesn't the other one never gets a respiratory infection. So, I mean, is there a, a subtle genetic shift where that one's immune system is weaker, or is there some stressor that that one's getting the other one's not? Yeah. Now, crypto, how do you test for? Is that fecal? Is that a swab? Is that how does that work? There's a couple different things. Um, on necropsy, it's pathology. His, you know, you send the samples off to the lab. Um, a lot of times what I'll do is, uh, if they can't afford to send out to lab, I'll take scrapings of like the, if it's a leopard gecko, I'll take scrapings of small intestine. If it's snake, I'll take scrapings of the stomach, just the inner lining, put that on a microscope slide, then do it. What's called an acid bath stain. And if it's there, it'll show up. Okay. Uh, now if I don't see it, it doesn't mean it's not there. It just means I just didn't find it. Yeah. Cause it's very specific, but not very sensitive. Okay. Whereas you can do PCR testing, which is the swab you can send out to the different labs around the country. Now that's very sensitive, 
and for the most part can be fairly specific to that particular one just depends on in the case of crypto you have multiple different species right so what some labs do is they'll do a, a general crypto test then sometimes you pay extra have it speciated out um, I tend to send my samples to University of Florida to their wildlife disease lab because I think that's probably the best one. It's the most expensive, but I think it's the, by far the best. And they will basically take the samples, run it against whatever generic crypto it is. And if it's negative, we're done. If it's positive, then either, in my case, I always have it set up just automatically. If it's positive, just run it. You know, they otherwise will contact you, ask if you want if you want to pay again to have the second test run. But okay. that's when they actually speciate it out to the different ones. Because there's some that are mirrors. I see a lot of crypto and fecal samples on a snake. It's probably because of the rodent. So just because you see crypto in the fecal doesn't mean it's there unless it is from a tissue or histopath where they actually see the crypto growing okay. in the cells. Now, that's different. Um, but, yeah, we'll see. I see a lot of, you know, where you get your mice from. You know, our distributor, where we get our mice from here at the zoo, they have microspiridia, which is not pathogenic. It's just in the rodents, but we'll see it. And cryptosporidia, which is obviously, you know, you've got to speciate it out. And most time when we see it, they speciate out. It's mirrors, no problem. But if it comes back, Sorophyllum, Varanii, or one of the other species, then we got to address it. Man. And that we were talking a little bit about that over at uh... – uh, at uh, Reptilandia about, you know, rodents carrying some of these things, which is pretty mind-blowing to me. I, I think I even saw Nathan's expression on his face kind of like, kind of light up when you said that. It's kind of crazy to think that, you know, the rodents could be carrying some of this stuff too. Yeah, I knew some of that for sure, but it it is the scariest part of, I guess, reptile keeping. It just kind of brought it into perspective for me. But the Beerus is not pathogenic to snakes. Okay. That's the key is that it, it's just a pass-through. Okay. Just they're eating it. It's a it's a rodent crypto, not a reptile crypto. Got it. Okay. So that's so the thing to remember. More yeah. if it it becomes cellular and starts growing in. But that's only if it's serpentis. Yeah. Okay. So okay. so that's what I mean by that. Sorry. Um, it's just a pass through in the rodents. Same thing with mites. You'll see. I, I'll see mites on a fecal. But is it a snake mite or is it a, a rodent mite? Most times it's rodent okay. mites. Now, that being said, when they look at it, if it looks like a snake mic, they'll flag it and we go look at it <laughs> in the enclosure. Uh, but uh, for the most part, it's rodent mites. We'll see um, pinworms, you know, it's pretty common in rodents, microsporidia, cryptosporidia. So all that we see in the rodents. Not all the time. It's not guarantee. We'll get negative fecals too. But sometimes we'll see all that kind of float through. Interesting. Before that's where that second test. That's where that second crypto test will tell you the answer. Okay. Otherwise, I don't want to condemn a snake for crypto when it could be something else. Right. But when they speciate it out and it says serpentis and it's a corn snake, corn snake's got some GI swelling right around the stomach area. That's pretty typical and okay. pretty bad. Be before we go into any more of of you know, viral talk and, and, and veterinary care. I, I want to know what, what, where did you jump from your practice and then you landed up working at the San Antonio Zoo? <laughs> Every vet's dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, um, you know, in private practice, I was seeing a lot of stuff and, 
I didn't do an internship or anything at the time. I just was right out of school. Um, then I was being asked to, to, I'm seeing all these cases and I just felt like I was constrained by not having enough knowledge. And some of that was the time in the mid nineties, you know, we didn't, a lot of that stuff we're still learning. Everybody was learning, but I wanted to advance my skills to, to that higher level. So I actually left my private practice and went into doing an internship at K-State. So I um, spent a year at K-State, um, their exotic zoo wildlife department, did a lot of zoo work, a lot of uh, just clinic work as well. Then come time when I finish up that, then the, re- the zoo residency popped up. So I ended up going to Oklahoma City Zoo and kind of combined with Oklahoma State University for a residency. So that's where I spent spent time there and just basically just dived right into zoo medicine. And so now that you're working at the San Antonio Zoo, <laughs> can you give us just like an like what 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 do you work with? Everything. Frogs to elephants is what I tell people. Pretty much Frogs I work yeah. with everything. <laughs> I guess so. I have a two parter kinda on that same same note but what mm-hmm. was the first like holy shit i get to work with this animal and then like your favorite species to work with at the zoo oh man um i mean i've worked for so many i mean i've been to san Antonio zoo for over 21 years now so i love their king it's Cobra. been it's been really just a cool experience uh got to see tons of different animals you know every zoo's different Mm-hmm. Even coming from Oklahoma City Zoo, which has you know has a good size reptile collection too, and just their general collection, it's just a different set of animals. And coming here, it was just a whole other set of animals. And in the last twenty years I've been here, it's all changed, off and on. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, even then it's changed and grown. Um, I will you know, say, I'm, I, I will say, the first time I went to San Antonio Zoo about five years ago, I was pretty impressed with the reptile display in their exhibit they have like their own house that you walk into and mm-hmm. um it, they have amazing species and different animals there they have so many different species of vipers that are so awesome to to look at and that's kind of it's part of the history and everything when this job came open out of my residency it was had to be fate essentially because it's just coming into a place where i had a reptile background that's i knew that's what the area of practice I really wanted to specialize in. So coming here, it was just, you know, the collection, the history, you know, with the, you can see the old pictures of Reptile House being open pillars and cage on the inside. Um, then they enclosed everything, you know, the history of Joe's Laszlo and, and all the work that he did with looking at natural history of animals and light cycles and temperature and lighting and those types of things. And then um, of course, you know, my boss, Alan Carden, was the reptile care for many years as well. Uh, now he's the VP of Animal Collections. But it's nice because it just has that whole history of all the different species they worked with. So I feel really, it's really fortunate and really cool <laughs> to yeah. be able to work here. And, and you know, we, now we have a conservation department that is very reptile and amphibian biased in a lot of the stuff they do. So, I mean, it's great. I love it. Are, are you a part of the, were you a, a part of bringing Komodo dragons into the world? 
Uh, yeah, I've had, I'm trying to think how many clutches I worked with over the years, but um, the last, all the last recent ones, yeah, I've been part of those. Yeah, that that was awesome. I got to see them at tiny little babies and now going and yep. seeing them, they're growing up really freaking quick. Oh, yeah. And uh, they're all being shipped off here and there and spreading the love to everywhere. And hopefully, you know, as, you know, I'm also the SSP advisor, the Species Advisal Plan advisor uh, for the Komodo Dragon work group. Cool, cool. That's so, awesome. uh, so I do all the, at least the medical consulting and, and then, you know, if we have any issues or questions that I'll, you know, talk about on the medical side or if anybody has any problems, they'll consult with me too. Uh, so it's pretty cool. Um, so, you know, I have, I have a love for Komodos, so I'm not gonna lie. That's pretty cool to work with those guys. I'm going to, I'm going to go back to Nathan's question. What's your favorite animal to work with there? Um, you know, I'm, I'm a chameleon file, so that's always going to be my, my passion is chameleons. Um, uh, but we don't have, we don't have a couple at the zoo, but, uh, definitely the Komodo. Yeah. I got, I got a pretty good love for the Komodo dragon. So not going to okay. lie. They're Was that cool. also the first one that you were like, holy crap, I get to work with. Um, mine would have been the elephant. Well, yeah, I mean, I worked with elephants before I got here and worked with, I mean, I worked with a lot of different species before I got here, though, probably Komodo wise, I got to work the most since I've been here. So that was pretty cool. So I'm okay. not gonna lie, that was pretty cool. And I mean, there's so many species that I worked with, like the last stone curlew, it's just some kind of fluffy, feathery bird, long legs that I think it was the last one in North America that was also like in its 30s. Get to work with the last one ever. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and, and what was that? Just a, it was just a just a normal bird, but get you know it's one of those things you get to work with them, and I don't think about price tags or rarity. I just you just work on them, like Aldabra tortoises and things that are over a hundred years. I mean, just I mean, yeah, in the pet trade that those are priceless essentially. But I, right. I just work with them. <laughs> it's another day at the office. Yeah, pretty much. That's pretty damn cool. Um, not going to lie, I'm jealous. Growing up, that was kind of like one of the things that I wanted to do, and, and life just took me on a different path. And now I see the love and passion that my daughter has for them. And obviously, I'm not cool. going to force her in any direction, but I can keep my fingers crossed that she'll want to work with animals. Yeah, my kids are – they like animals. So obviously, you can see all the cats and everything because they're all – probably like waiting for me to feed them but it's my daughter's job so she's slacking <laughs> but uh, i'm not haven't forced them on there so my kids have slowly been asking for different herps and inverts and things so i'm letting them kind of ease into it so that way they i don't force it down their throat and they hate it so they're they're like can i get a ball python it's like how about something else no ball <laughs> python okay fine <laughs> so so it's okay yeah, you know, they'll let them play with stuff and have fun. Yeah, let them let them find their own interests and and build from there. Yeah. Now, do you keep uh you keep your own collection of reptiles or are you wanting to get back into well, first off, like you you started keeping chameleons and then you you became a vet and and obviously you have had a great career doing that. Have you gotten away from like the herpetoculturist side? Are you wanting to to you know, where are you with that? I'm trying to think if I've ever not had reptiles in my house. I, 
I think I've always had reptiles somewhere in my house for the last 30 plus years. Somewhere. Don't know if it's in the walls. Or <laughs> <laughs> it's somewhere. So, but I mean, it's come and gone. I mean, at one point, I think I only had a couple of Russian tortoises. I think that was probably the lowest I've had in my collection. Um, but um, I've always had something. Uh, I have some rosy boas and sand boas for fun. I'm kind of get back into my entrasia because I've I used to have those in the 90s and moving divorce and internship residency i kind of ended up selling and moving those on i regret getting rid of all those species way back then I bet. because they're all really cool my sabu pythons and everything that i just had so it's just yeah uh, i kind of regret all that now but now i'm kind of slowly kind of getting back into that so yeah sabus are an interesting species i like them a lot yeah i got them yeah actually right when they first started coming in I got several. I had two that were, I think, sat on the tarmac too long and cooked, so they were oh, neurologic. Man. So I had them literally sitting underneath my desk for, I can't remember how long, I think for like three years before I ended up selling them to someone right before I moved. But they were neurologic, but all the testing, everything was fine, and half the snakes were already dead, cooked. So I think it was just heat. Mm-hmm. But yeah. they, they ate. They did fine. They they were just like regular snakes. They just were a little neurologic. Okay. Yeah, a little spider. Way neurologic. <laughs> yeah. They, they just so, had a little bit of yeah. uh, character to them. Right. And they had other sabus that were just perfectly fine, but they were at home, whereas these were quarantined in the office in gotcha. the vet clinic. So, but, uh, oh yeah, all those crazy things you had when you had a couple hundred snakes <laughs> way back in the day. I'm curious how you tend to, I don't know, to me it seems pretty impossible to be able to tend to hundreds if not how many different species are at the san antonio zoo but how, how do you manage to to stay on top of the care of so many different types of animals yeah that's it's not easy but you know yeah i'm, a, I'm bored in zoo medicine that's kind of the umbrella kind of specialty um i'm also born in reptile medicine so i'm double boarded but at least in the zoo medicine side of things you know, even though we're the ultimate jack of all trades, they're the ultimate. We're a specialized, we're a generalized specialist or a specialized generalist, depending on how you want to do the oxymoron. But, uh, but essentially, I mean, you know, we have the sixty some thousand, sixty thousand somewhat species of animals that's under our care, except for humans. So, it's the ones we don't do. Yeah, they're dirty, nasty, and they smell. <laughs> if you had kids, you know what I'm talking about. My son's about to hit puberty, I think, and he smells now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> My wife's complaining that he stinks. So, um, yeah, so for the most part, um, you know, you have to look at the differences and the similarities between different taxa and species. You know, if I if I know that a horse that's vomiting is probably going to die because they don't vomit. I know if a rabbit is vomiting, they're also going to die because they can't vomit. <laughs> um unless things are really really bad they both get colic they both get hindgut issues so i mean they're very they have long ears you know they have other (laughs) similarities in that sense um ferrets on the other hand they vomit all the time they're fine with vomiting that's why they're using research for a human model for vomiting so the same anti-vomiting meds we used us was researching ferrets a lot of times. So wow. you got to look at those similarities and what's different about the different things. Same thing with reptiles. You know, you got to look at the different taxa and the husbandry. You know, you got your montane, then you have your 
arid species. So we just got to look at those similarities and background of the husbandry. Then we can pull out the details of their medicine. It, it's cool because being a, a vet is like being a scientist and you're using like deductive, you know, mm-hmm. science to, to plug and play and see what's going on because we clearly don't are, aren't even close to knowing everything there is to know with different species. So it's, it's, I'm, I'm sure when new things pop up, um, you know, I'm sure it still happens from time to time, which keeps the job from not being mundane. Yeah. I remember seeing night of virus way, way, way back when they didn't know it was a virus. I found it was a virus, but I didn't have thousands of dollars to pay for the testing. <laughs> so, cause I was given a bunch of ball pythons that were just dying left and right. Uh, this is back. Oh, geez. 10, 15 years ago. It was a long time ago. And um, yeah, I sent out samples. University of Florida said, yep, there's some virus, viral, isol- viral particles in there. It's something, but I got to come up with the money to fund it. Right. So, Didn't know what it was at the time. Yep. So at that time, I, I elected not to <laughs> fund it, <laughs> though I probably should have out of my own pocketbook. Uh, but uh, But yeah, I mean, things like that are always popping up. You never know. Speaking of that, how has medicine changed over the years on how we're treating these viruses? Because now, I mean, you, you know, I, man, what, what's the old school antibiotic that, you know, is prescribed basically even today, <laughs> you know, that will close their eyes and what's the name of that antibiotic? Oh, um, it's uh, vitamin B, vitamin B. Batril. There we go. So <laughs> it's yeah, the vitamin so, with the big B. Not the, you know, it's not the, right. you know, it's Batril. And, you know, we always joke it's vitamin B. Everybody, everything gets Batril. Um, uh, that, and, that was kind of like the go to, but now <laughs> we're seeing a lot of resistance to it. And so, mm-hmm. how, what, what's that like? I mean, as far as how it's changing. I mean, Batril can still work, but, you know, I have a thing for antibiotics. So I always like to delve into the differences of antibiotics and, Where's the infection? Where's the source? Because certain things, Batril's not good for. So you got to choose the antibiotics that work best for that particular location or that particular type of infection. Uh, Batril doesn't work well in an abscess. Now, if you were to clean out the abscess and and open it up, get air to it, and change its pH and blood flow, then it might help. But a lot of times it doesn't really help with those. So you got to choose a different type of antibiotic or go with a topical therapy until blood vessels start growing in. But if you have a situation where it's like respiratory disease or pneumonia or generalized infection in different areas, then their antibiotics will work. Um, you know, what is it? Is it gram negative, gram positive? Is it pseudomonas? Is it aeromonas? Is it a staphylococcal? So you got to know the different infections, and that's where the cultures come in. I mean, they're not cheap. They're expensive. Trust me, I know. (laughs) Um, So, and then you get a swab and it comes back negative. That sucks even worse. Um, (laughs) I will say that we've been doing a lot of these new DNA probes, which is really awesome. It's really changed a lot over the last, I'd say the last couple of years, especially the last year. I've been doing a lot more of these. um, It's more due to DNA technology where we're actually doing a swab, just like a culture. But instead of trying to grow the bacteria on a plate, they actually will run it through, you know, the the chip grid and basically pull out all the DNA for the for the different bacteria 
in this in this particular case, bacteria, fungi, mycobacteria, mycoplasma. So it will test for all of them, which is fantastic. Because you used to have to do three different swabs for that. Now I can do it on one. So it's a hell of a lot cheaper. And they'll also give you a higher detail of what's going on there and give you a kind of a quantitative amount of how much bacteria is in there. Because if it's like one colony of Pseudomonas, I'm not going to worry about that. But if it's 100,000 colonies of Pseudomonas, yeah, I'm going to worry about it. You know, because that's kind of giving me an idea of quantity of what the bacteria is in there. Then I can look at the genetics of that bacteria because I'll actually take that bacteria and run the common you know the little plasma rings for resistance they'll actually check for those dna as well so then they can see if it has the resistant genes so, and if that pops up in that bacteria then they will then they will give you the best antibiotics and give you a whole grid chart of what antibiotics work best and what don't just like for a culture but in this case it's actually looking at the dna of the bacteria that way so it's a little bit more sensitive now you get a lot of a lot of extra stuff <laughs> you get a lot of different bacteria in there so you kind of have to read between the lines because there's a lot of bacteria that are no big deal yeah. uh, but there's some that are definitely pathogens e coli salmonella you know all the, the the buzzwords we know about so it'll pick up all those too and um, speciate those out so it's pretty pretty interesting and it's a i think it's changed a lot and i know a lot of our my exotic vet colleagues have a lot of them switched over doing a lot more of these types of DNA testing for culture stuff. And I think it's I, helped a lot. I, if I don't, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was one of the last tests that was ran on my email. Um, yeah, I think so. Um, and yeah, still crazy to find that nothing really came back. No, no fungal bacteria, nothing. It was pretty crazy. But that's not a bad thing. Yeah. You know, and I could say, no, I'm not that one. Let's see which. No, she's not up here. My wife swore one of the cats had a urinary tract infection. I thought she was fine, but I took it, took it to the clinic, did a sterile sample from the bladder, which should be no bacteria in the bladder. Uh, you do it sterile and you know, prep and stuff. Um, sent out to the thing, and it's a DNA probe, so it's super sensitive. Zero bacteria. So I could definitely say that's a good thing because there should not be bacteria in there. Right. And that if they found a ton of bacteria, then, you know, urinary tract infection. So the fact that it wasn't a urinary tract infection in that we didn't see any bacteria on the slide when we, when we did it in-house before we sent it out. So in that case, it worked. Yeah. So if it's not there, it's not there. Whereas on a culture, sometimes it may get sit on the may sit in a hot car or the sample may have been sitting somewhere. And sometimes there's just bad luck with the sample sometimes, whereas this is a little different because it's DNA. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice it, to know there's less, uh, less variables. Yeah. So it's just really changed a lot. So really it's kind of revolutionized kind of how we've been doing some things. Any like complicated or creative cases come to mind at the zoo? Where you really had There's to a like, bunch. Where, yeah, I mean, can you <laughs> talk, always can, a bunch. Can you talk about one that comes to mind in which you you really were like stretched creatively to figure out what the heck was going on? I mean, there's a lot of different things. I mean, Komodo dragon, Bubba, our our large male that passed away last year. Um, he's probably one of them that definitely was one that um, was kind of publicized a lot. Because he was in the because we did media stuff with him because um, at, at the point at the time um, 
how it's been about eight years now that he started getting to the point where just act where his just joints are just giving out and uh, it was just hard to hard moving around just really down lethargic anti-inflammatories weren't working so at the time i just started doing acupuncture coursework so veterinary acupuncture so so yeah so he was one of my guinea pig cases index cases if you will at the zoo with acupuncture and did you play um, meditation music in the background and give him some lavender essential oils no i didn't have to just stuck needles in him <laughs> and um sure shit he got better wow no meds i took him i did no meds nothing just just needles and i mean i did connect the needles to some electrical stimulation kind of yeah. like a, a similar to what a tinge unit is yeah, for, like back. yeah and acupuncture e-stem is, is the exact same thing as a tin unit so a tin unit is kind of a always oh, trying to hit a nail with a sledgehammer versus hitting a nail with a small hammer i mean if you, you use a sledgehammer but it's a little bit overkill right and it's not where very accurate you? where were you two and a half years when i was <laughs> going through back surgery and all this crap i, I should have done more <laughs> acupuncture no i have done that i have had practitioners you you know i've had acupuncture done to me before back is mm -hmm. one of them um and um it's it's really cool when you get it done as soon as they put it in you feel that muscle just go yeah and just release it's really awesome. oh yeah it's a dequi uh, <laughs> type of sensation it, it is it's definitely different <laughs> of yeah. a sensation and you know, I, I didn't teach him anything about placebos or how it affects or it works. And it's not like it was like one to 2% better. I mean, it was, we were talking quality life, potential euthanasia on the table. Yeah. Wow. It sounded then good. two to three months later, we're talking, Oh, I wonder how long he's going to live. How many more years is going to live now? I mean, it was that dramatic. I mean, we did like eight sessions over a, how I can't remember, like three months. Um, then I think we ended up doing over his, the latter part of his life. I think we did about 22 sessions Wow. overall. Um, and uh, like every quarter or so we'd go and we have a schedule on the calendar, which sometimes we'd do it. Sometimes we'll skip it or we'll push it back a month or two. Uh, but what was interesting is that, you know, when we started the therapy, it was going to the fall. So it shouldn't work if it's getting into wintertime because we know what do reptiles do? Yeah, they slow down, they get cold. Um, what happens to us when we have arthritis in the wintertime? We slow down, it gets mm -hmm. cold, things get stiff. I mean, Chinese describe that differently about stagnation and flow of qi and, and that you can think about that with your joints when they're stiff and you warm them up and they get better. Well, not better, but they seem to move more and that's because you're warming them up, getting the energy flow through that joint. So, and that's when he started improving was through the winter months. Oh, so wow, that's okay. where I was looking at it going. That's why I felt it just didn't work. And, and I love how you, you mentioned, you know, you didn't tell him about placebo. You didn't tell him about the healing ancient arts of, you know, and it yep. still managed to work. Um, and that's, that's, yeah. I mean, as far as creativity goes, it's pretty damn creative <laughs> and all in all how long did he end up living after the treatment i like about seven years eight years wow i mean it was a uh, i mean probably eight years after that so i mean it was pretty good then the year before um he passed away we actually did one further step and that's where we used a um so it's a 
chemical that's used or medication that's used in dogs for elbows um, is similar compounds been used in humans and they've also used in different animals uh, across the world but this particular product is was a new formulation and it was a it basically it's a radioactive tin in this special kind of a compound uh, where when you inject it into a joint that the little bit of radiation or ionizing uh, energy from the from the tin is very short very small wavelengths uh, on the order of cell layers thick so what happens is when you inject it into the joint it actually kills off the inflammatory cells that's lining the joint that's causing all the pain that's releasing all the pain mediators all the different chemicals that's causing the inflammation of that joint so it's really cool you can take that joint that's steroids injected in knees and elbows things like that it's another type of anti-inflammatory whereas right. this is using a, um, ionizing radiation but the animal is not radioactive it's just that joint area but it's very very weak so it's mm -hmm. something to be done outpatient which is pretty cool uh, we did that to him um, it was the first reptile in the world treated with it um, there's i know two we were the first then i talked to um, another zoo and they were they ended up being the second one um, I guess I can say National Zoo because it made media, so it's not like it's hidden anywhere. So I right. talked to them about it because um, I think it, they called us about some ideas on one of the animals they had. So I mentioned what we did, and then they tried it, and it worked on theirs as well. So got about a, I'd say about a good year of therapy out of it. In dogs, it could be about six months to a year. Okay. So felt pretty good about that. And it's just something that was really cool. It took a, there's not, it's as only specialized places could do it. So we had to drive all the way to Round Rock, <laughs> which is oh, an hour, hour oh. and a half, depending on Austin traffic. So we ended up um, getting the treatment up there. So it was a big car trip. So above the Komodo got to go on a car trip. <laughs> so not many it was a pretty big deal. That. No. Yeah. And it was, I mean, you could all look this up on the media because I think we did some media stuff in it too. And, press releases and the company was pretty cool they donated all the medication uh, oh, which awesome. was you know several thousands of dollars worth of um, therapy so it was um, yeah really really cool the the cost of medicine is what often yeah. keeps like just general reptile keepers from you know and it's pursuing, tough. pursuing treatment or even just taking their animal into the vet I know in Lucas's case with his AML uh, Dwit, uh, it, it was a lot of money and the snake wasn't really improving. So, I mean, it's, it came down to quality of life as yeah. when we put down any of our animals. But, um, you know. And it's tough, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Post-COVID, post this massive inflation, all of our stuff's gone up. Mm -hmm. cost of goods has just gone i mean you guys see it all the time oh yeah then you know it all passes us too and unfortunately um we have to run a business so yeah. so um, how do we how do we as reptile keepers then kind of weigh like how much we should be throwing at the animal in, in terms of finances and when mm -hmm. does it become you know the point yeah. where we need to look at other options or e even you as a vet right because i'm sure you yeah. guys yeah. have to come to that decision too oh yeah. yeah i mean i have my own animals too so i have to come to that decision even though i'm 
in some ways better fit and prepared for that because I'm a vet, I you know. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I even have to make those decisions even on my own guys, and it's hard because you're way invested close, so you know exactly how that works. Yeah. So, um, so for the most part, you know, and one of the things that didn't really cover is that you know as a reptile specialist, one of the things that makes us unique is I think all and there's only a couple dozen of us, you know, and and we all know each other <laughs> pretty well. Uh, we've talked to each other and, you know, for years we know each other. Um, and I think all of us are reptile nerds by heart. And that's what kind of thinks kind of makes us a little unique um, versus someone that exotic vet that sees the reptiles or versus a reptile vet. I, I think that was and that's not that anything wrong against the other exotic vets or smaller vets. There's great ones out there. I mean, I can think of several fantastic reptile vets that are imported. Just for whatever reason, they they could have done the board thing, but professionally, life and everything happens, and it's okay. Um, but I think all of us that do reptile medicine do it from the approach of husbandry first. Look at the not just husbandry, but natural history. Looking at the the nerdy side of a reptile care and really looking at the nuts and bolts of, you know, montane, you know, I said montane, arid, tropical, you know, looking at those types of species and looking at the environment they're in, you know, is it, you know, why do they have metabolic bone disease? Mm-hmm. Why do they have all this calcium in their body? Is it because they're beginning vitamin D, which we've been told 30 years to get vitamin D. But now we say we can't give them all vitamin D now. We had to hold back because our lighting is too good, which is putting out too much UV light. Was it really too much or is it – but it's still not the sun. So it's – there's so many variables, and that's and that's what I get into and I love is the husbandry side, uh, which you know, is definitely unique among veterinarians. And, yeah. that's what we, and that's what we really do is we really preach the husbandry side and really delve into that part. Um, and for me personally, I've been really delving into like the last two to three years, I just decided that I really want to focus hardcore back in husbandry. So I've been different podcasts, different YouTube videos, some good, some bad. Fair. <laughs> uh, so, and, and we know all those cause I've seen them all. Um, and, <laughs> um, and I really kind of just really went back into the, just the nuts and bolts and nuances of husbandry. And I just really enjoy that and getting all the different concepts of thermoclines, UV clines, humidity clines. So having all these different variables and different areas within the enclosure. And, you know, now we're looking at, we're getting enclosures large enough. You can't have a box full of sun. You have to, Oh, I guess what's for the, the current thing in the reptile lighting Facebook group is to have that slice of sun. Right, right. Where you have the UV light, the heat, and a part of the enclosure that's focused. Right. Uh, whereas general lighting for all over, but then you have that focused area where it's warm and UV at the same time with infrared ABC and UVA, UVB. So you have all that area that's the proper slice of sunlight where they can bask. They get their UV, they get their heat, they can go away somewhere else. If they don't need the UV, but they can slide over to the heat. 
Right. Because yeah, they'll I, adjust that. And I've even been recommended. So I'm getting a, a, a pair of uh, this upcoming week. I'm getting a pair of uh, a long-term captive Aru green tree pythons. Um, and everybody who's told me, you know, uh, Aru's have been hard to establish um, <clears throat> or not established, but it, uh, harder than other localities to, to breed successfully and get the babies established. And a mm-hmm. lot of people are having success with UV, but I'm even being told, you know, ha- have the UV on for only four hours a day. Um Right. And so even just the limiting factors on that, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of what you're talking about on just like mm-hmm. the different type of, you know, how we're trying to understand and do these things, because ideally it would be great if you could have the UV on 24, well, not 24, but on a daylight cycle, but have places of shade and other areas where the snake mm-hmm. can get to. But, you know, obviously in captivity, most of us are, are you know, we can't, uh, unfortunately, we, we don't all have zoo uh, style enclosures. Yeah. Even, you know, they're, that's correct. I mean, we can't now, but even when it gets bigger, as you know, heating a large enclosure can be difficult. I mean, yeah. you got to get the, you got to get the, the, the halogen, the, the crystal, I forgot what I call the golden, how, you know, the big infrared halogen type heaters out to get some bigger. Um, and uh, that I think is changing because we're all, want to do the naturalistic type of thing and that's getting to be the new thing where people are just having one animal instead of 50 and that's fine if you want to have 50 bioactives i'm fine with that too that's a lot of space right but um i think there's so many things we could do with that and i think that part of the growth of our industry is, is beneficial we just have to figure out how to balance it yeah there's got to be a balance somewhere right um and, and especially for breeders uh, you know mm-hmm. because breeders are are their own niche within the reptile industry because we're we're uh breeders are supplying people the pets and the animals and and you know they're they're you know a lot of them are doing them in big numbers and so really having to to find a way to try to provide the best and that balance i think really hones into even you know, breeders are starting to even think differently, not just pet keepers on how they can be more ethical with their keeping. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a lot of breeders uh, narrow down species, narrow down numbers, focus on what they want to specialize in. Um, you know, the, yeah, I have the 200 reptiles of lots of different things and I focus down, you know, I'm, I'm on the I'm on the opposite side of the Python world. I do the smaller stuff. We do too. <laughs> Superdor got... free takes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I still have that one. I still have a, a lone female anthill python. So she's oh, pretty man, small. That's awesome. But she's like five, six years old. I mean, she's just she's like awesome. Three feet. <laughs> no, not even, I mean eh, maybe about thirty inches. So okay. uh but nah, she's awesome. She's laid slugs for me, but I still don't have a male. My wife won't let me afford a male, so I'm waiting. <laughs> <laughs> so someday I'll find a male for her. Um, same thing with my children and my Stimsons, pair them back up. But um, uh, but yeah, no, definitely. I think that a lot of that's changing a lot. I think just the, I say the technology is bioactive because bioactive has been around. Naturalistic or bioactive, depending on how you want to define it, because I know that's mm-hmm. a, it's a buzzword. It could be positive yeah. or negative. Yeah. I mean, that's been around for hundred years if we just didn't call it that you know people digging up part of their backyard putting it inside that's still <laughs> yeah. bioactive seriously um there's people that do that nowadays <laughs> so um you know zoos have done things like that where they wouldn't have like a naturalistic enclosure but not all zoos do it that way um and not all 
bioactives at home are bioactive. Some are just dirt and no bugs in there. That's fine too. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, we're all learning. You know, I did dart frogs. I didn't put springtails or isopods. I should have. That would have been better <laughs> back then. A lot yeah, easier. We used, oh, yeah. I mean, I did a, I think I think I put an under gravel fish thing and, and I think I had some gravel in there. Then I had organic potting soil, which was hard to find at the time. But now it's all different mixes of different things. And the ABG mix wasn't even created then. So it's just all the different things back then that we just know better now. And it's all trial and error. It's all the different breeders, the zoos, the conservation work, the husbandry people. You know, I mean, you got Lori Torlene that's doing all the behavior stuff with snakes and some cool stuff that they're doing with training. So yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things out there that's positive. Yeah. I've, I've implemented, um, you know, uh, uh, choice base and, and target training for a couple of mm -hmm. my pet retics that I have. One of them being uh, the animal that, that Nathan sent over to me. Um, and, uh, Nathan, just an update for you. Um, I, I, she's not in the big, uh, naturalistic rack setup because I found out she can squeeze through the back. Um, and so she's <laughs> in just, yeah, we've discussed that. Yeah. One. So she's, she's in the, the, a tub right now, but when I open it up, um, I can see her just like thinking so much more. And the other day I just decided, I was like, you know what? She kind of looked like she was in food mode. Let me just stick my knuckle in front of her to see what she does. And she literally smelled it. I thought she was going to bite. And like four or five tongue flicks later, she just put her head back. And if that was any of my other retics and I don't target train, that would have been them latching onto my hand. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's pretty. I, it's pretty cool. I started doing a little bit of choice based handling. Uh, I wouldn't say exclusively with uh, one of the hatchlings from that uh, clutch, and I've experienced similar things. And yeah, they're very curious, very confident. So I like those babies. So we're we're on the topic of husbandry, and I want to ask a question that I think will play a role kind of into this. Mm -hmm. But how can keepers never come into your office? Goes back to husbandry, learning about the animal. Unfortunately, impulse buys are real you know <laughs> it's it, what it we happens preach against all we, the time we preach it every episode <laughs> yeah um it, it's setting things up setting it right looking at the species that you're doing and doing the nuances because not i mean a, a bearded dragon and iguana they're not the same you know retick and a green tree python aren't the same nope they may come from similar areas, but they're not the same. Yeah. So you got to know how to the, set the terrestrial arboreal, looking at the different humidity, looking at. Though I will say for retics, getting them height actually is a good thing. Yeah. Too. Absolutely. Exercise, right? They need it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, and I think that's a lot of the problem that we had, you know, berms and retics back in the days because they didn't move. It still happens, but yeah, yeah. it's, it's they, getting uh, better now. We 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 got. Uh, stuck in, we can just treat this retic like a berm. Yeah. Right. So, you know, and all those things, um, I think that's a lot of it is just going back and keeping proper, looking at don't just do something because you're told to do it, question it. Because yeah. I could see two keepers, and I've seen it, where an, someone buys an animal from this person that lives in another part of the country, they live here, they keep them the exact same way. But one lives and one dies. And that and why is that? Well, it's because your location in the house, 
location uh, or the amount of humidity in the environment you're yeah. in. You're from like a dry Nathan's climate, in a Utah, wet climate. And I'm two hours from the water. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just total different variances that cookie cutter husbandry doesn't work always. And that's why I tell people that you have to get not the little stupid dial thermometers, but a yep. real digital type thermometer, ideally tied with a thermostat, right. <laughs> which, you know, no one ever hears about thermostats at the pet store because that's an expensive thing over there in the corner of the shelf. Yeah. No one wants to buy that, but that's actually really important. Right. Um, and you still have to have a thermometer gonna... to double check that thermostat because I've had those thermostats turn on and stay on and never turn off. Right. So um, no matter how much you spend on thermostats, they can always go bad. Yeah. So just it all goes back to researching the animal you have and trying to fine tune the husbandry. You know, instead of missing twice a day, but you only need to miss once a day. Maybe you had to miss three times a day. Yeah. You may have it two different parts of the house and that humidity is different. And I talk mm -hmm. about, you know, I did a lecture to vets this last um, month and um, it was two hour lecture and it was all it's how herpetoculture faces reptile medicine mm. how they how they interact and the first part of the lecture i was like i'm not going to talk about medical stuff for two hours you can leave if you want but we're going to talk about hungry yep it's, that's where it all and starts. no one left and no one left and it was still a full room and no one left and we talked about reptile husbandry and everyone loved it because we just talked about i mean i had pictures of different brands and lighting and because veterans just don't get that. We just don't get that training. And, you know, I, I always say veterans are a pain in the ass. We are. We're a pain in the ass. And so are reptile breeders. But, you know, we're, we're a pain in the ass <laughs> to each other, too. Yeah. But I grew up in a different system where I see the, you guys as breeders as resources. I don't see you guys as, oh, great, he's calling again. Damn it. You know, I don't see it that way. <laughs> Yeah, he wants another bottle of Batril. Uh, you know, it's it's, <laughs> it, it's more than just that. And, you know, yes, I've given antibiotics to breeders and clients like that, but it's not just here, go away. It's more like, all right, here's a relationship that we're building. Right. Okay, you have this in stock, but I need you text. Nowadays, it's easy. Text, call, whatever. It's just like, working on a ranch or a farm. I mean, you're, you're farming, you're just farming reptiles. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. And so I really try to have that type of relationship so we can build upon that to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's huge. And I think that like on a more serious note, like a huge part of like not having to go into the vet, like I had been keeping retics now for, for five years and that was the first, you know, um, other than the, the, the animal that I took to you that came to me gravid and she had the one egg stuck in yeah. her that, that you, you palpated out. Um, uh, but, um, which worked of, that time, but the last that, one I tried to palpate out went to disaster. Yeah. So yeah. sometimes, so, yeah, that was super it, lucky. Yeah. I mean, you were literally, you, you were you massaging at the, the cloaca and where the, the, uh, reproductive tract was and literally it just popped right out. It was pretty crazy. Uh, and that's when I was like, all right, this guy's a wizard. I'm taking him here. Uh, I'm taking my snakes here again uh, because I'm I'm very um, – I've had nightmares growing up as a kid and taking an animal, a snake, to a vet and not getting good advice or good care. And um, 
Um, I remember I had my Burmese pythons growing up. I had a, uh, uh, it had a respiratory infection and, and, uh, we took it to an exotic vet when I lived in Miami and they, they, uh, told me to soak it in water for three days straight. Um, and, um, I was just kind of, you know, and this is me back when I was 10 on the internet, you know, on AOL and, and mm-hmm. like even trying to Google it, I just didn't see how that was. And even now knowing what I know now, I'm like, why, why would that be the first course of action? Um, and that's but, a lot of that speak that goes back to reptiles or our veterans could be a pain in the ass. Cause sometimes we just, we have to be confident. I mean, sometimes like, you know, confidence and arrogance are two edges of the same blade um there's a fine line there and i mean do you want to go to a vet that's wishy-washy or do you want one that's confident right unfortunately go to the confidence and that can also go arrogance too right but you know i try not to be i try to be confident but i also be the first to tell you an honest opinion and i'll tell you that you know what i have no idea let's figure it out yeah so and i think that's the that's the key right there is you know, trying to find that kind of vet that matches who you want to work with. And and that's basically the approach we did with Dwight when we didn't know what the heck mm-hmm. was going on. It's like, hey, like we, we don't know. Let's try to run more tests and figure it out. Yeah, And we did a stepwise approach because, you know what, we didn't know. I mean, we could run $10,000 worth of diagnostics day one. Or you start, you know what, was was run the basic set first, then go the next step, the next step, and just kind of roll into that diagnostic plan. Right. Sometimes we get answers, sometimes we don't. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's frustrating in some cases. And it could be pretty rough, fortunately. Yeah. Um, I, I got another question, but before that, I want to do a shameless plug for one of our sponsors, VivTech Products. Um, <laughs> I, 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 so when we were talking about humidity and, and, and temperature readings, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I've always used Sensor Push, and Sensor Push has always been kind of the gold standard. They're they're expensive and they're they're accurate to to you know three tenths of a degree for their higher end sensors, but um, I've been running these VivTech sensors side by side to my sensor push ones, and they are at most 0.4 to 0.5 degrees off, and they are a fraction of the price. So if anybody is looking for solid uh, thermometers and hygrometers that, you know, you get the Bluetooth and Wi-Fi data to your phone 24-7 at a very good price, VivTech is a great option that, that, you know, it, it might not be to the T, to the sensor push, but you're going to save hundreds of dollars mm-hmm. going the VivTech route than the sensor push route. And I'm, I've known Erica for, I don't know how long I've known her forever. Erica's great. Way before, way, way before she got married, way before she started <laughs> VivTech. And I know Ryan back way back to before VivTech. So I've known them both and yeah. um, they're passionate reptile people. They are Some of the most. And and uh, I just, most. yeah, so I just saw the recent Facebook post where they're basically conscripting their children <laughs> and <laughs> helping them while they're doing testing. They're grabbing boxes and helping oh, them yeah. move stuff around and um, they hand test and hand check everything. Oh, they're, they're, and that's they're above and beyond what most best. places do. Yeah. So, as, yeah. as far as what they bring in, I mean, they've run me down their entire procedure, their quarantine and mm-hmm. all the testing and things they they're. They definitely, I, I look up to them in almost every facet of, of reptile keeping. And, um, but, but speaking of that, um, you know, and, and we talked about how we can safeguard and not go to a vet's office. What, what, what would you say is an appropriate quarantine 
method for for a general keeper or a breeder to use? There's different ideas in quarantine. Quarantine is not just getting it in and put it in the cage next door. That's not real quarantine, <laughs> unfortunately. I know it happens. Um, I've done it too. I'm not going to lie. I've quarantined properly and I've also not quarantined properly. So I, I can be guilty too. But really, all it takes is that one animal. Is that their first animal or is that the 50th one you got? Who knows? It only takes that one time where you bring that one animal in, that one ball python, starts breaking with respiratory infection in five days, and your collection's dead in 30. Yeah, that's the nidovirus right there. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's the kicker. And how long is that quarantine? That's a good question. That answer is still up in the air. I mean, I go with a 60 to 90 day quarantine as a minimum standard. That's 60 days for like a captive bred, otherwise historically normal, no problems. In the wild caught stuff, I'll go 90 minimum. Because sometimes, you know, it stinks. Sometimes it takes them that long to get fecal samples. Right. And you got to run fecal samples, especially in wild caught stuff. You got to check. <clears throat> Lizards are just chock full of stuff. Yeah, you're and almost that, always going with flagellin yep. and treating for parasites. Yep. Almost immediately for most, even in the, the chondro world. Mm-hmm. Most people who get the you know the the imports they're they're treating you know right away for parasites. Yeah, but don't treat right away. That's the other thing is don't throw drugs at them immediately. Yeah. Oh, get yeah, them yeah, hydrated yeah. first. Hydrated and, that, and that's and, yeah. yeah. Get them hydrated. If you can get a meal in there first, that'd be even better. I know sometimes it's hard on imports. Now I'll gavage feed them or I'll do an artificial type food supplement if I have to sometimes, but. Um, especially these fresh. I mean, I've had how Euromastic scare I back when they first started coming in, how oh, gee, about 20 years ago <laughs> when they first started hit, they were all thin and emaciated. So I took a group of them and I just syringe fed them every day, every other day until they started eating their own. And for reason, I don't know why I got rid of them. <laughs> I should have kept them because now everybody wants them and they're expensive. Now, back then they were like 20 bucks a, skinny lizard now they're like a couple hundred bucks so <laughs> i should keep up this stuff more than 20 years i guess <laughs> at a time but uh yeah i know you just you got to get them hydrated you got to get them established and eating then we can worry about the parasites yeah for yeah. the most part i yes you, parasites will kill them but mostly it's because they're stressed and not eating and not hydrated and they have other health issues first yeah that we got to crack like we get, like humans get parasites, and mm-hmm. and you know it's not detri- it's not going to kill us because for the most part we're we're, you know, healthy and running. But mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I can definitely see with a fresh import and yeah, uh, the stress and not eating and you know who knows how long they it takes for them to get a drink from the time that they're bottled up and and sent overseas. Mm-hmm. And you know the flights and dehydration and all, all that, that stuff. stuff. So. Yeah, get them hydrated first. Then we can worry about the parasites and other things down the road. And, you know, viral screening. I mean, if you're getting ball pythons, you got to get them an idovirus tested, chondros, mm-hmm. everything else. I mean, you get it's so prevalent in there. And as much as I would love to say breeders are honest, not all of them are. Yeah. I mean, I've had some absolutely lie to my lie to me just to my face. And I know the answer. Yeah, because I because that person got that animal from them, 
and it died of X, Y, or Z. And they're like, nope, not me. Yeah, I've actually seen um, I've seen examples of breeders sending the same negative NIDO screening to multiple people on different animals, mm. thinking that that mm. wasn't going to catch up to them. Yeah, unfortunately, too much of that happens still. Yeah. It's... So, so sixty ninety days as a minimal standard, mm-hmm. and then obviously, if you have the ability to, that, to... that's in a separate area, ideally. Yeah, yeah somewhere else not at your house somewhere somewhere else yeah uh completely non airspace oriented um if that's not possible then a completely separate room okay uh, com- a completely separate area that's not even close ideally yeah gloves so for, for me different... that's upstairs and yep. i and then the rest of my collections in the garage yeah that's that's how it work. Yeah. That's as far as I can get at least. And then, yeah, I yeah. do have, uh, I do have my own tools that I use upstairs mm-hmm. that I, that never come into the garage. Yeah. Own tools, your own disinfecting, uh, latex gloves. I know it sounds silly, but latex gloves work. Yep. Yeah. So, um, I mean, post COVID or during COVID, it was tough to get them, but now everybody's got them and they're on clearance. So no reason why you can't get them now. Yeah, I think I have probably like 500 in my garage right now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a barber and use them all the time. So I (laughs) just have extras all over the place. Yeah. So it's great because you can just go and just pop them off and go to the next one. So Mm -hmm. I'm doing a lot of frog work. I mean, I'm constantly just popping gloves on and off, you know, going between different frogs and stuff when we're swabbing for chytrid or things like that screen. So uh, yeah, no, definitely try to keep your animals separate, get fecals in just to check. You know, get a crypto screen. Um, you can, there's a cheaper one. There's a more expensive one. Just depends on what you want to get. Yeah. Um, I mean, offer both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one's less than 100. One's a couple hundred. So depending on the clinic and the pricing and what part of the country you're in and how much cost of living adjustments are. But they're all variable in pricing. But, but yeah, I mean, it's important. I, I got some wrap-up questions that um, our, our buddy, Glenn McClellan, uh, we've had him on for the history of captive reticulated pythons or the captive history of reticulated python series that we mm-hmm. did. He's a current vet student at UF. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, he had some great questions that he, uh, you know, wanted us to ask as far as, you know, a conclusion and wrapping up that, that goes directly towards veterinary school and, and just that, mm-hmm. those kind of things. But before we do that, I had that question that I told you at the very beginning that I wanted to mm-hmm. ask you uh, about a decision, but have you ever worked with, um, have you ever worked with uh, Apodoro Papuana? A little bit. Um, I, not recently. Um, I did work with one, I like to say back when I was in Oklahoma, but I don't, I, then I think there was a private, Back in Houston, when I was in private practice, there's only been a couple. I mean, they're not very common in general. They're not. I was going to ask you if you could help. So I have the opportunity. A friend is moving here to Austin and can't keep snakes, and that's the last in his collection that he's offering to <laughs> to let me have. I wanted to see what your thoughts were on. It's it's a rare and a cool species. I wanted to see. Yeah, Sorry, cool excuse snakes. my ignorance. What what is it? Uh, a Papuan python. So okay, ba- okay. basically, the Indonesian olive python, but way better. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So, 
Another call. Cool, it's been a long time since I've had a chance to. I just saw some not too long ago at one another zoo collection. But um, yeah, they're cool snakes. Yeah, I just heard that they're a little uh, mean. But this one's like been imported now for two years, but is a wild yeah. caught. I mean, scrub um, pythons could be nice. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> real nice. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I always say that the uh, scrub pythons are like the the you know the Michael Phelps of retics, just faster, <laughs> more athletic. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm I'm on it. It's it's free. He wants to just keep it here because he's only going to be an hour away, and he could come visit it. But he said it was by far his favorite python that he's ever kept. Uh, and this is this is Theron Lance, by the way, Nathan. That that you know he's yeah. kept scrubs, he's kept retics. He's Wait, kept... he's moving where? To Austin. Oh, okay. Yeah. Me and him need to talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's moving to Austin. So uh, uh, he's gotten rid of like 90% of his snakes. And uh, he asked me, he's like, hey, I was going to offer this up, but I really love this girl. And I'm going to be like an hour from you. Wait, They're did really... he get rid of the Crocs too? I think so. Why is he not talking? All right. <laughs> going to yell at him. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I wanted to hear your thoughts if you ever had experience working with them, but just, just a little bit, not much, okay. you know, other than just peripheral stuff, but, um, they're cool snakes. Yeah, no, I think that, that, I mean, they, they look amazing. Their head shape is unlike any other Python that I've seen. And so, um, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm interested and, in, and, um, but let, let's get up to these wrapping up questions. One thing that sure. I wanted to ask is, um, so, from Glenn, he said, there's typically a great degree of philosophizing required for veterinarians. Who do you owe your moral compass to and why? Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah, this guy's a big nerd. Yeah, no, that's a good one. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, you know, going back to influences of people I've worked with over the years, um, at least with you know, veterinary medicine, you know, of course... You know, I go to, you know, go to your dad, your parents, you know, for that overall moral compass. But when it comes to at least the style of medicine and how I tend to practice, uh, one of my first mentors, when I first, actually, when I was in high school, I started working at a vet clinic and spent my summers there uh, for quite a few years uh, going to vet school until I had to go full time. And um, his, one of his veterinary philosophy was teaching. And his his goal was to have the receptionist know as much as the kennel person, know as much as the technician, know as much as the veterinarian about the basics of everything. You know, uh, yeah. the receptionist can tell you exactly how a, a distemper vaccine works, how it works, and the vaccine schedule, what parvo disease is, and can explain the pathophysiology of it. In basic terms so that was his philosophy and and he did that with his clients too he basically educated the clients about what was going on it wasn't just a yeah it's this here's this go away he's mm -hmm. a talker i'm a talker so it was great because even though he hopped room to room but in those minutes he really tried to help the individual the owner understand why and i think that's the and that's what helps me help you guys make that decision is because I give you the why and I want to be the partner with you guys 
when it comes to those types of things. You know, good decisions, bad decisions. I'm I'm there to help guide you. You know, I'm your moral compass in a way with your pet. Right. Yeah. Um, but that always stuck with me about, you know, I still use some of the same stupid analogies he used way back in the day <laughs> <laughs> and how he described things and taught things. Cause he used to close, close the clinic down half day on Wednesday. And that was education. The whole staff. Oh, that's awesome. After a staff meeting, he just picked a topic and talked for two hours on a certain topic. Uh, heartworm disease, vaccines, shampoos, flea control. So, um, so going back and just that staff was super educated and I got to be a part of that. And I, and I still feel that way. So, yeah. and I think that's what helps me conceptualize a lot of these treatments and therapies and diagnostics is I can sit there and I'll explain the why, right? Not just because, but why, right? That's important to me as a consumer and as a client of a, of a vet is I, I always like that deep understanding of wanting to know, the why. And so when that message can be portrayed, that that's huge, but, um, awesome. I, I, the next question, um, he talked about compassion. He, he wants to bring up compassion fatigue is it, kind of like an epidemic in the veterinary field. And to be honest, me being a psychotherapist, it's, it's a huge thing for us. And I would say majority of healthcare individuals, whether it's for humans or pets, or I'm even sure that, that Nathan from time to time probably experiences burnout with, with cutting and, and, uh, you know, he teaches and also cuts hair. And so burnout and compassion fatigue is huge. So what, what keeps you, um, ticking, what keeps your passion kind of, what, what keeps your, your candle lit? It's, it can be tough. There's some days it, it's rough. I mean, I have some clients, um, I had a client just recently with his iguana he had and, um, it was hard. I mean, we had to euthanize because it was just a disease that it had. And um, he took it hard. I mean, I've seen some, you know, people drop off an animal. It's like, yeah, just kill it. I don't care. You know, that type of attitude to mammals and dog cats to, you know, people. I mean, I have to I almost want to call, you know, an, a taxi or Uber to take them home. They're so upset for a reptile or a guinea pig or a hamster i mean it doesn't really matter what kind of animal it is that's the first thing i always tell people you know you may have spent 50 dollars on the bearded dragon but that person got the kitten for free right so yeah. technically the bearded dragon is worth more than the kitten <clears throat> i mean you don't i mean it's being a little crude but i mean in some ways you gotta look at it that way it doesn't really matter what kind of animal it is yeah and um i it's tough there are some days that, you know, I have clients and patients that I've worked with for years and it's time in my own animals. I mean, sometimes it's just, it's rough. Yeah. I mean, we've, you know, we've had lots of animals in our household here. <laughs> so I don't even know how many ferrets that my wife and I had at one time or another. We probably had a dozen and a half ferrets over the 20 years Ferrets are awesome. and they all get, just shitty diseases in the end and um, different cancer and other types of things and pets. It just sucks. Mm -hmm. So that's my one eyed herpes kitty right there <laughs> <laughs> laying down. Um, he's still good. He's good. Good. Um, but um, it, it's not an easy thing. Um, 
you got to do it for, you got to sit there and you have to be able to dissociate your brain sometimes. And it's tough. Yeah. Detach. A little and, bit. um, some days I'm better at than others. You just got to try to be able to try to empathize. And it's hard to do both at the same time, be objective and subjective in that kind of situation. But I just try to know my task. I have a job to perform. That's the objective. We got to do this. And if I can make it the most calm, peaceful, reasonable way of doing it, it's going to make the subjective easier. Mm-hmm. It's not easy by any means. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy, but if I can make it smoother, so that way I give the owner, and not gonna lie, myself, the technicians, the animal, everybody, if we can make it easier for everybody, that's the better. Yeah. And it's tough. And just, you know, I have such a, a love for animals that I just have to understand that I'm doing what's best for the animal. Sometimes it's even best for the client in a way, you know, it's, it's, they can't make the decision. I'm not going to make it for them, but sometimes I have to guide them, but I'm never going to tell someone to do something they didn't want to do. Yeah. But if that's, if that's where they need to go, I'll handhold them and we'll work our way through it. And that's tough. And some days that just, it gets to you. Yeah. So, but you know, I, I have a great wife, kids come home. It's hard to, it's hard to drop everything when you get home, but sometimes I just try to just put that aside and just do what I can. My wife's a vet tech, so she understands to a degree. She also doesn't understand because she knows too much too. So, (laughs) So it's like the get over it mentality versus the empathetic, you know, part of it too. So it's both ways. And, same thing. We we're both in the industry, so we both see different things differently, and also the same. Yeah. So compassion-wise, it just there's not an easy answer there, and there's some people that just can't do it, and I, I feel bad for those veterinarians. Just get help. Yeah. Sometimes come, it's come, sometimes come see it's, me. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's just a a fact of you know, find a friend. Right. Find some outlet. You know, I always tell students, and I guess you can share this with your student friend. Um, two P's. I always tell my students two P's: patience and perseverance. Because you're going to get told no a lot. You can't be a zoo vet. There's not enough jobs. You can't be an exotic vet. You can't do this. You can't do that. Well, you just got to be patient. It took me several applications to get into an internship because. And I saw the interns that were before me, and they were phenomenal interns that were before me. And those are the persons I lost out to. Yeah. And they're all zoo boarded and all, you know, top of their field. And so were the ones after me, too. So it was just one of those things where I had to wait my turn, right? essentially. And that's where that perseverance is. You just got to look at the end goal. You got to just fight through those high points and those low points. So that's how I look at it that way. And the other thing is hobbies. You got to have two hobbies as a veterinarian. You got to have something with a skill with your hands. That can be with or without mental energy. 
sometimes as a third option, but something skill with your hands, a craft, because you got to keep your hands going. And that also keeps your brain going. And that's the whole thing with dementia, Alzheimer's, you know, other thing they talk about is you got to keep that, that hand do and you, eye coordination do going. Yeah. Don't laugh. I'm, I'm awesome. Sudoku. <laughs> Don't laugh. I do that every day. And same thing with the, with the, uh, my wife makes fun of me at solitaire too. So I'm like level 900 <laughs> something in on solitaire. Holy crap. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Almost. I'm about the nine, about almost 900 now. <laughs> so, um, just keep your brain going in that sense. And the second one is a, some sort of a sport, even though, uh, my gut is telling me I'm not doing as much sports as I used to. Uh, but in college and through vet school, I fenced. Yeah. I loved it. That was one sport that just clicked with my brain. I was, I wasn't raised as an athletic kid. I was raised as to, you have to get good grades to go to college. That's how I was raised. The yeah. sports were like, a, eh, but you need to go to college. You got to go to yeah. college. You got to get good grades. It, it sounds so. like it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's exactly what we preach in, in my field as well. I mean, it's yeah. you're you're describing self care and then it's also yep. the ability to have the outlet as a therapist, to be able to talk mm -hmm. to someone, whether it's a, a colleague or another therapist. Um, uh, but... Every therapist needs a therapist from what I understand. Right. Right. And that's um, the same thing for us. Cause we're therapists for our pets yeah. and patients. Yeah. Um, Nathan, wrap us up with the last question. Yeah. So there's a great degree of uh, philosophizing required to uh, veterinarians. Who do you have? Oh, wait. Oh, wait. No, the first one. Okay. I was like, what? <laughs> it's like, that sounds that awfully one. familiar. <laughs> yeah. When you, when you first read that, Lucas, I was going over our sheet and I was like, wait, I don't even know where he's pulling this from. This must have been a last minute from Glenn. <laughs> no, that, that very first one under. Yeah. Conclusions. Yeah. Uh, what's something that you wish more people understood about veterinary medicine? It's, we have to run a business and it's nothing. And we all love animals. I mean, we wouldn't be, I mean, we wouldn't be where we are if we didn't love animals. Now, of course I'm going more towards the private practice side of things, you know, talking about this, but, um, and we're softies. We, we love animals. We're all softies. And yes, we'll sometimes we'll give discounts or sometimes we'll and eh, not charge for that this time or next time. But that also hurts us, too, because of, you know, fairness between different clients and doing things. And it costs money to run a business. Mm -hmm. It's just like a, for breeders. I mean, if you guys lost $100,000 a year. Yeah, it doesn't help. You can't breed very well. <laughs> you can't breed many if you keep spending. Um, though, you know, with veterinarians, it's, it's not that they're mean or cruel when they give you an estimate and it's too much. Um, it's just what it costs nowadays. And with inflation yeah. and everything else, it's just, I mean, the, the veterinary compensation to the veterinarian, oh, you must be making lots of money. That's only a, a small portion of that bill. Right. The vast majority of that bill is paying for the staff, the electricity, the water, the, the the mop water to clean, the disinfectants in the room, the gauze. The, I mean, the, the building chemicals, <laughs> the rent, right. lease, um, you know, all yeah. that comes in. Oh, yeah, that, too. So, I mean, all that's part of that bill. And um, and I, I see it all the time. You know, such and such gave me a thousand dollar estimate. and how could they 
it's my beloved Fluffy, and, and I can't believe they would do that to me. And it's like, if you look in, if you look at that estimate, a lot of it's pretty reasonable. I mean, there's differences between where you live. Right. I mean, if you're in the highest economic area with the highest you know cost of living, it's going to be a much higher charge than somewhere, say, south where it's cheaper to live. I mean, it's the same exact procedure. But for the most part, you get what you pay for, too. And there's some clinics that, yeah, dental may be 500 bucks, dental may be over 1000 But sometimes if you look at what you're getting for the $1,000 one, it's a hell of a lot safer for your animal, and you're getting x-rays, and you're getting this charting, and you're getting all the other stuff that's more in-depth. Right. So you're paying more, but you're getting more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think it's a good point. Um, I, I think that happens in a lot of healthcare fields where a lot of people forget that um, you know, in order for you guys to even be seen by us, you know, it's a business. We got to keep the doors open. Yeah. We got to keep the lights on. And I don't try to, I mean, I try to be reasonable. I try, you know, I'll say, okay, if you can't do this, let's do this or what step it mm-hmm. across. We can, all right. If I, if you can't afford this, what's your budget? What can we work with? And we'll try to fit into that budget. Sometimes yeah. I can, sometimes I can't. Right. And sometimes it's just a shot and send them home instead of a full antibiotic therapy. And I feel bad yeah. and, and the owners are mad, but then they don't realize that we feel bad because we know we could do so much more, but we just can't. So, you know, cause I'm sometimes we give stuff away and it, it works, but we got to pay for that in the end. Yeah. Well, and that's the tough part. I, I, um, I, I want to say thank you for, for, you know, coming on. And I, I mean, I'm, this was one of our longer interviews, but, but to absolutely zero regret, because I think that this is uh, a topic that isn't brought up nearly enough as it needs to in the reptile community. Um, Nathan, before we let Dr. Coke out, you got anything else? Uh, yeah, there's several different resources online to find a good reptile vet. Uh, one that I would like to plug just a friend here in Utah. She's been putting together a list. Uh, I believe she's adding you to it, Rob. Um, but reptophiles, uh, yep. Mariah Healy, uh, she mm-hmm. has a great, pretty comprehensive list of competent reptile vets that you can find in your area. So, uh, find your reptile vet, make sure you at least know where they are, know their number before you need them. So exactly. There's ARAV.org. That's the Association of Reptile and Amphibia Veterinarians. Now, that's just a membership. That doesn't mean that they're a competent level or anything like that within mm-hmm. it. That's just a membership. But at least that veterinarian cared to join that organization. Yeah. I've been involved with them as an officer, as committee members and everything for the last several decades. But that's one resource that has at least has a list of it on there. For the specialist, um, that's American Board of Veterinary Practitioners, abvp.org. Awesome. And that also um, will list not every one of us, but will list some of the specialists as well. Um, it covers from East Coast to West Coast to Hong Kong to Europe. So we oh, have geez. all over the world. Um, there's only, like I said, there's only 20 something of us. So it's not very many. Yeah. And unfortunately, we've had a couple pass away over the last several years. So um, our numbers are hanging in there, but we're all reptile nerds. This is your time. <laughs> yep. 
Well, Dr. Koch, again, thank you so much for coming on. And um, yeah, hopefully we can have you back on to, to talk more about the herpetoculture side. I, I, obviously, we've talked quite a bit, and I know that you can talk about this stuff for days. So we'll definitely be yeah, having pretty you much, back on so. soon. Yeah, anytime. Just let me know if you got a topic. We'll cover it. Thank you right. so much. That's that's incredibly generous. Uh, really, thank you for your time. It's great meeting you, man. No problem. Thanks. Take care, Dr. Cope. Will do. All right. Let me see if I can figure this out, Lucas, because I can see you over there. Well, I mean, he's still in the, the screen on I this know, one, too. <laughs> Where'd oh, it go? It's over here. Hold on. Oh no! Did it disappear? Oh no! We have to hit the down no, button. No, I there found it. Is. it. There we go. There we go. Technical all right. difficulties. <laughs> um, all right. I, I I was really happy with the way that that interview came out, and um, I I want to. If any of you are still listening this far in, and you're at the end, clearly, you guys are enjoying the content. So if you're enjoying the content, there's that link down below, Patreon.com forward slash the retake lounge jump on board where where i think we hit 70 members and um i i, I yeah our, our discord keeps growing and getting more popping so for those of you you know that that you know aren't ready yet that's okay but just thanks so much for for staying plugged in this long yeah have a great week everyone remember to hit that subscribe button we're on our way to a thousand um and we'll see you next week see you